Let's pray before we get into the word, though. Father, as we continue to freely admit our need of you, we also are mindful that your call upon our lives through the word and through the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit is to renounce our sin and turn away from it. And this day we renounce our sins of pride and carnality. So often we are fools who run headlong into our lusts, believing the lie that we will find satisfaction or comfort or relief in those very sins. But only you have life to give. Only you can satisfy. Only you can save. Lord Jesus, you are risen now to reign, and not just over an eternal or heavenly kingdom, but to reign over us, to reign over our sins that for so long dominated our existence and even defined our identity. But reign on this day by your grace that our pride and lust and self-deception and wicked scheming may be crushed and vanquished under your kind and merciful rule. Even as we renounce all of the sin, we look to you and we believe the Holy Scripture that tells us Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. How we thank you that we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and and this cross. We praise you that Jesus is our peace. We thank you that it is not our works or not our good intentions or not our best efforts that bring us peace, but it is Jesus alone. We praise you that through him we have access by the Spirit to the Father. Through him we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, of the household of God. Oh, what a privilege it is. What grand privileges these are and what consoling truths for us in a day where so much remains unclear and uncertain. We pray for our nation on this day that you would grant to our leaders and citizens a deep conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come that we may as one people repent in your presence before judgment falls, before the great wrath comes. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have borne patiently with us. Would you please move in mercy before the Christ returns in wrath and judgment as has been prophesied? Have mercy upon us. We tremble to think of what awaits those who rebel and harden their hearts against the truth, but we know that you are a God of salvation. So hear us as we cry on behalf of this land that we love. Now come, Spirit of God, that we might know the power of your presence and the word in this place today. Illumine our minds that we may understand it. Revive our hearts that we may believe it. And move our wills that we may obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it promises to be an unusual week for us, doesn't it? Uh, Some of you are making plans to get with family or friends, but you've had to modify and adjust, and you still are a little uncertain, and we never know when our governor or even the national leaders will, will put additional requirements or restrictions or recommendations on us, and it's a challenging time. And this week of Thanksgiving, when at least I think most of us feel like this is when the holidays begin, right? 
I mean, Thanksgiving is one of those special weeks, but it just doesn't feel quite the same. I was intrigued as I stumbled across an article just yesterday titled, The Power of Hospitality to Strengthen Families. And I thought, you know, there's some of this that really is uh, in view in the coming week, like we're going to miss something really special. And the author, whose name is there, Luma Sims, actually is writing of her experience transitioning from Iraq to America and the cultural differences that she has observed and experienced. I want you to listen to just a couple of what I think are really important paragraphs that actually go along with our study of the conscience and in particular where we're headed today. So it's about three minutes to read this, but just hang with me and, uh, and I'll put some of the key words uh, from the article up on the screen here in just a moment. But I think that Luma's insights are profound. And although she's not trying to identify what I would, I would say are some of the cultural idols, she actually does that. And I think when we recognize who we are in comparison to who God wants us to be, not just what a, a recently immigrated woman might suggest we ought to consider being, it brings that much more weight to the truth of passages like Romans 14 or 15. So listen as I read a portion of her article. Although this is anecdotal because I don't have specific data on it, overall I would say American parents do a better job at playing with their children and attending to a child's individual needs, and she's comparing that to her own culture. That makes sense given the individual orientation and the democratic principles of this American culture. Liberal democratic principles, and, and let me just go ahead and, and quote her directly, and these are what she includes, equality of personhood, respect for individual human rights, religious freedom, equal treatment before the law, nonviolent civil disobedience, political and economic space for growth. And she actually inserts a little et cetera. So these are not all of them, but I think she's tracking well. We would all say, and she's not being critical. She's just saying it is what it is, uh, but she's gonna draw a little comparison. But then she goes on to say that, that these principles coupled with a tempered individualism have the potential of producing a space for human flourishing. In harmony, these qualities can help parents see their children as their own persons with a soul which must be nurtured into good, mature, responsible members of society. But when these good cultural qualities become disordered and out of equilibrium, they can create a cultural atmosphere that acts against the well-being of the family. In contrast, the Iraqi culture, indeed the whole of the Middle Eastern culture, tends to downplay the individual for the sake of the entire family, household, and clan. And one of the first lessons I learned is life isn't just about you, but you are connected to others and what you do affects many around you. This rule applied to significant life decisions such as which career path to choose or who to marry all the way down to seemingly trivial practices like not eating the last apple in the refrigerator until everyone in the house has been asked if they want it first. As an aside, this was the area, the area that caused me the greatest agitation and difficulty after I came to America where I was surrounded by a different message, think of yourself and your desires first. And again, she's not being hypercritical. I think this is just the voice of an outsider who steps in the middle of something that most of us are just so used to, we can't even really see it for what it is, and she just nailed it. 
But then she goes on to say, if your idea of hospitality is restricted to a formal or semi-formal dinner, dinner party with no children within earshot, allow me to disabuse you of that thought. By hospitality, I mean a particular expression of love and openness to other people and a generosity of spirit. At the heart of hospitality is an orientation toward the other. Now, that resonated with me for two reasons. One, it was deeply convicting because I thought, you know what? I'm part of that great American dream for individualism and individual expression, and that's kind of the default mode of my heart. But this resonates with me in a second uh, realm and a more important realm because God, in his mercy, has called us into his worldview, has called us into his truth that, that is not just a suggestion he makes for how life might operate a little bit better for us, but how it might shape us individually and collectively. And though the message itself this morning is not about hospitality, there is something so deeply gospel in this last little paragraph that I just want to throw it out there in light of a week of Thanksgiving where most of us would prefer to gather with a table full of family or friends and experience something of this. But that should not just be one or two or, or even six times a year. There, there's a whole lifestyle that God, through Christ, his life, death, resurrection, through this work of redemption, seeks to grow and develop. And it's actually the solution to a problem that we're gonna explore in just a moment. So the next step in in growing and exercising our conscience, if we can shift gears a little bit there, uh, has to do with cultivating a heart of love that, that's similar to what uh, Luma has described. The next step in growing and exercising our conscience is, is about cultivating a heart that eagerly welcomes other believers who have very different opinions and practices. And not just welcoming them to a table for a brief meal, but actually welcoming them into the fellowship of saints, into our hearts. To this point, we've considered the scriptures that show us the conscience is the watchman and witness of God in the soul. It's, it's designed by God to bring blessing. It's designed by God to, to get you moving on a path of truth and grace to experience the fullness of of, of his presence and blessing. And we've looked at, uh, in week one, just exploring the conscience as the creation of Christ. In week two, we looked at the importance of clearing the conscience through the blood of Christ. In week three, last week, we considered calibrating the conscience according to the authority of Christ and, and leaving those other voices of authority from culture or family tradition or even religious tradition that grows out of a misunderstanding of God's word, leaving all of that behind so that we might be free uh, to serve the Lord and know him. But the, the big question for today is this, how do we handle differences of opinion in matters of conscience? This is not easily done. And and. Part of, the, part of the deal is, remember, your conscience doesn't do grayscale. It operates in terms of black and white, 
It answers to the highest authority perceives. And so what happens in a context like this where we as the people of God come together and and we're trying to live out our our Christian life, we're trying to order uh, our words, our thoughts, our deeds according to the authority of God's word, and then after you've thought through it carefully in most cases or you just see a consistency with the word of God and so here you are living your life, but then you come up against somebody else who, who is as committed to the word of God seemingly, but they understand some things in a, in a way that leads them to a different application. And so at the, at the daily practice level, there are vast differences. And, and this is where the real conflict emerges, again, because your, your, your conscience doesn't know how to process the gray that just opened up. And so it's easy to, as we'll see in this passage before us, begin to judge the other person or group as less spiritual or the other option or sin that Paul addresses in Romans 14 and 15 is to scorn them as less than spiritual or less mature or less knowledgeable. And both judgmentalism and scorning are sins that will ultimately destroy our fellowship with one another. Now, lest you think, I'm sure there are a few differences of opinion, I've put together, uh, I think it's 22 different categories, and I'm just gonna read through some of these, and my intention is to overwhelm you, both verbally and visually at this moment, okay? So hang in there. You say, what examples of, or opinions of, of matters of conscience might there be? Well, what about entertainment choices? What kind of video games should a believer play? How long should we play in any given day? Is online gaming always sinful? What kind of movies should a believer watch? Should we ever view something that's rated R? Would something like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan be an exception to the no rated R movies? What do we read? What kind of language is appropriate? What is wrong? What's inappropriate? What about euphemism? How about dress? What's appropriate? What's modest? How dressed up should we be for Sunday services? Should men wear hats in buildings? Should they have facial hair? What about ladies wearing pants or shorts or sleeveless tops? And what about tattoos? How about smoking? We know cigarettes will kill you, but is it sin? What about pipes or cigars? Can Christians use alcohol in moderation? Is there a spiritual difference between fermented beverages and distilled? How about our food, what we eat? Should a Christian eat organic or processed food? Does the Bible actually have secret recipes for healthy eating? I heard someone say once that Ezekiel 4.9 holds God's perfect recipe for bread. Maybe we should just eat that kind of bread and bake it ourselves. How about our money? Do New Testament believers still tithe? What is this grace giving I hear about? What percentage of my income is appropriate? Do I give more than 10% or what if I give less? Can I buy a nice car, a new car, a new house, new clothes, or, or should I purchase my clothing secondhand or shop at retail stores uh, in good conscience? What about holidays? I mean, no Christian celebrates Halloween, but there's a lot of free candy, and you know, I enjoy it with my kids as, as they have gone trick-or-treating. Would Gospel Hope ever do a trunk-or-treat event in conjunction with Halloween? How about Christmas? Some say it has pagan origins. Should we put up a Christmas tree? What if it actually does dishonor the Lord? And what about Santa Claus? Is it okay to tell my little kids about him? And then at the time we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, Easter eggs and chocolate bunnies are kind of a big deal, and is it okay for me to put together a basket again for my kids or my grandchildren? And speaking of children, when should couples start a family? 
What about birth control? How many kids should we have? And what philosophy of parenting do we use? That really old guy, Gary Ezzo, or that not quite as old guy, Ted Tripp? When and how should we discipline our children? Should we feed them fast food or go organic? Do we discipline them when they don't eat their food? Or do we just let it go and know that when they're hungry, they'll eat enough? What about medical practice and treatment? Should we go homeopathic or traditional? What about vaccinations? How about education? Do we homeschool, Christian school, private school, public school, dating or courtship? When? Where? How much parental involvement? What about those dating standard lists I've seen? And heaven forbid that we even begin to discuss politics at this particular juncture. How about the environment? Should we think about God? How should we think about God's world? Is global warming a real concern? Should a believer recycle? And what about hunting and wildlife conservation? Then within the church, there are the issues of Bible translations. I heard once there's a conspiracy among modern translations to diminish the authority of God's word and alter the gospel. Which translation should I use? And what about teaching on the end times? Is a premillennial eschatology necessary for salvation? And what about the timing of the rapture? And last but not least, what about our philosophy of worship? How often should we meet? What day should we meet? How often should we observe communion? What about corporate prayer? Can we have a Saturday night service? And do we have to have multiple services on Sunday? And what about midweek? And then styles of worship. Do we sing from the Psalter alone as some congregations do? Are hymnals okay or gospel songs? And do we have to sing out of a hymnal or is it okay to project texts as we do here at Gospel Hope? And what about physical expressions in worship? Can I lift my hands? Should I lift my hands? Is that a Jewish thing? Maybe that's just a California thing. What kind of a thing is it? And I could actually go on a little bit. But some of you are already zoning me out, like, stop. So we all acknowledge there are differences of opinion, don't we? All of these and many more that we could add to the list are examples of what, of what many would say are serious issues. Now, not all of them are serious to you personally. But there's not anything on this list that I haven't heard discussed or seen articles written about or blogged about or Facebook arguments erupt. And before you dismiss them offhandedly, you need to recognize that the church has always wrestled with issues that are deeply personal and very serious to the disagreeing parties. So the question is, how are we to handle the debatable issues of life? And even though the conscience operates, as I said, in terms of black and white, there is a lot of gray area in our world, and there's even gray area in the church, and we want to make sure that we don't so calibrate our consciences uh, that we don't leave room for one another when other people actually, by God's leading, by God's permission, end up at a different point than we do. And, and let me interject one other thing. Sometimes focusing on the debatable issues becomes a distraction from and even a replacement for the true gospel mission. Because you can end up in conversations about some of these particular issues that seem so biblical and so truth-oriented, and we're, after all, we're just trying to figure out what God's heart and will is, uh, that it feels like a really spiritual exercise, but in reality, it has sidelined you. It's like talking about uh, sorry, ladies, uh, sports analogy, but it's like talking about what plays the football team should run on the field on the sideline instead of having 
the team on the field running the place. And there's a time and a place to be in a, in a classroom setting or in a huddle, but by and large, God's intention is for his people to be on the move, on mission. So I know even the series will generate a fair amount of discussion. Uh, and that's healthy, but don't get lost in the discussion where essentially you sideline yourself. Stay on mission. So a few, for a few minutes here, we're gonna look at several examples of difference of opinion from the church at Rome. And it's not the only one. It was the church at Corinth, the church at Colossae. I think every New Testament church that you encounter in the New Testament has significant issues of disagreement and there's always a way to resolve those. Now, your Bible should be open to Romans 14 and 15 and I'm gonna ask you to follow along. I actually wanna read the entire chapter and then into uh, Romans 15, 7. I timed it out yesterday. It's about four minutes of reading. So I know when you look at it, you're like, man, that's a big chunk. Uh, and it's a little bit longer portion than what we usually read in the services, but I think it's very helpful for us to kind of hear all of this as Paul writes it, and then we're gonna go back and look at a couple of key points. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, we could even say weak in conscience, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's the second time you've seen that term welcoming appearing. Verse one, now here in verse three, so you might wanna mark that or just note that. God has welcomed him. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day, like uh, these, these would have been holy days probably on the Jewish calendar. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord, in the, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The differences of opinion are significant. And we encountered some here out of Romans 14 and 15. And just by way of quick reference, if you go to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll also see some other differences of opinion. What we're going to do, though, is just stick with Romans 14 and 15 today and actually draw a couple of uh, examples right out of this and work through, so, so what do we do with this? That whole question of whether you should eat meat that's been offered to idols or not is totally foreign to us. I, I'm not aware of anyone here who's been in any kind of a, a setting or uh, context where you actually had to decide, am I going to eat this portion of food that was just offered to the idols? But that's what was going on here. And I think you'll see that the principles apply to committed believers uh, who have differences of opinion at the level of conscience. Now, we're going to use, uh, we're going to start building a chart today that I hope will help you see some things uh, so that we can compare side by side the strong conscience, the weak conscience, the strong brother, the weak brother, and ultimately see what God's desire is. So here are some examples for you. It's a variety of issues. The, these were uh, so significant to others uh, or to those members of the church that they were in danger of, of splitting apart. What are these opinions that Paul makes reference to back in Romans 14.1? Well, you know what an opinion is. It's a personal view that is the result of thought or judgment of some kind on your part. And, and most of us reach opinions, and some stronger than others, but most of our opinions, we believe, are, are well-reasoned, if not biblically based, and, and not that we're looking for a fight over them, but it's often very difficult. And as Paul says here, you, you welcome a weaker brother, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. And what he's actually speaking to here is that people with different opinions are actually beginning to scrutinize the thoughts of the other and trying to demonstrate how your thinking is not biblical or spiritual or God-honoring. So there's this, this, this searching out and pronouncing of judgment on those opinions. That's what is at the heart of Paul's writing here in Romans 14 and 15. So let's look at the issue of meat and vegetables and food offered to idols because it's found in both Romans and Corinthians. And again, as I said, I, I want to begin building a, a little bit of a chart of comparison so you can see, first of all, there is a difference of opinion. 
And if you go back to Romans 14, verse 2, you'll see that Paul speaks, first of all, of of strong and weak people and then the practices that they have. And under the strong column, you, you can begin to add some descriptions there. First of all, this is one whose conscience is free and strong enough under the Lord to eat meat, even though it may have been offered to idols. The other side, the, the weak conscience, the weaker believer says, I can't. And it may be, it's probably through past association with idolatry. We're all sympathetic to that. And you can even see that it's likely the strong because they have no previous lifestyle uh, in that uh, are perhaps Gentile Christians. Uh, the weak may be Jews because there were Old Testament prescriptions against it and uh, many of them had, been, had scattered abroad at that point, and so they were seeing a different cultural context. We, we don't know for sure, but that's why I use the word likely. But notice verse 6. This is really important for us because Paul, Paul acknowledges that both groups practice what they do for two reasons. The first, to honor the Lord, and the second is to demonstrate gratitude. Both groups want to honor the Lord. Both groups are grateful for the salvation that they've found in Christ. And that is something that is of great significance. It's beautiful, and it needs to be protected. But there's a serious problem that begins to develop. And that's where we encounter those words that actually describe sin. And the strong are tempted to despise the weaker. That is to reject them with scorn. This idea of of despising or scorning actually means to literally to make them nothing, to make them of no value, of no account, to reach a point where we're actually saying, we don't need those people in our church. They're just slowing us down. They're getting in the way. They're always complaining, always stirring up some kind of, some worry or fear or problem. These vegetarians, they're ignorant of what the Bible actually says, and I don't see how they can be so blind to the freedom we have in Christ. And it, it, It's an attitude that is sinful, and it begins to create division. And on the other side, the weak and sinful attitude that accompanies this is passing judgment. And that has to do with judging the spirituality of another person's life. So in this case, they're judging the strong ones to be carnal or unspiritual people and so in probably in their minds they're saying these meat eaters don't they know where that meat comes from how can they be so blind to the sinful association more spiritual people would avoid any food that's been offered to an idol but at this point both groups are in sin because they're acting toward their fellow believers with sinful attitudes and perhaps even sinful words Both groups fail to see at at this particular juncture that it is God who has welcomed them. Both groups fail to see the cross work of Jesus Christ, if I can put it that way. Now, as you continue to study Romans 14 and 15, and even if we had time to go back to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, you would see that there's actually a spreading problem. And this is where, as, as you move outward from the strong and sinful or the weak and sinful, there are two other columns that begin to open up. And the lawless person is not only sinning, but is operating outside the truth of the gospel. And that's where, if you look over in that left column, these are likely Gentiles. They're clearly meat eaters. But back in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually uh, states that they, by going into the temple, 
eating at these banquet tables that have been lavishly provided for, meat that's been offered to idols, but by participating in the temple in that setting, they are actually fellowshipping with demons. So there, there's a significant problem, and that's where we can say to eat meat in that context or in that setting is clearly out of bounds. And they actually do so, that last little bottom corner there, they eat with flagrant disregard for others. There's not even one thought about a spiritual union or relationship with other people. We call that lawlessness. And ultimately that leads into another gospel. Leads you away from the truth that is in Jesus. But on the other side, you can see there the column that is titled legalism. It's those who are in danger of being swept into Judaism, and Paul even speaks of the party of the circumcision, and both of those groups actually, they they would actually teach and promote Jesus, but they always want to add something to him. So it's Jesus plus circumcision, for instance. It's Jesus plus observing Old Testament ceremony. It's Jesus plus something else, and ultimately, as Paul says in Galatians 1, that is another gospel. And that's where we have to be very careful. And it's not always crystal clear when you, when you slip from that weak and sinful column and, and some of the attitudes into full-blown heresy. And they end up not simply judging other believers, but uh, rejecting them outright. A couple of cross-references there from Galatians and the book of Acts. Remember last week when we looked at Peter's life, he was in danger of doing that, wasn't he? Because first he told the Lord, not so, I I can't eat those foods. Those are out of bounds according to Old Testament law. And then God said, eat it. And by the way, there's some men who are coming to your door and they're Gentiles and you actually need to go associate with them for the gospel's sake. So what is the the solution? Well, let's go again to the text and and look with me at Romans 15.3. And what I want you to see first of all is the motivating love of Christ. Paul says in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And that that immediately stands in contrast to despising them. You can't do that, that's sin, but let's go beyond that. You have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is acknowledging they're not yet where they ought to be. And we can go to other passages where he just says straight up, we know there actually aren't really gods behind these idols. There's only one God. But they're not prepared for that yet because they can't eat that meat in faith. So what's our obligation? To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And before we can object and say, well, wait a second. Why can't they just grow up and make it easy for us? Look at where he guides this thing. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, fell on me. He's actually quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. So let's pause and think about the motivating love of Christ. When Paul says he did not please himself, to state that in positive terms, he actually set our interests above his own. He set the plans and purposes of God the Father as the top priority, and the Father's purpose was to save rebels, That's what makes that quotation from Psalm 69 so powerful. These aren't people who were begging for for rescue and relief, for mercy and and salvation. No, these are actually people who were reproaching, actively reproaching God the Father. And yet Jesus came 
to seek our best interests. He suffered our insults while he sought our best interests. And this is where the challenge of growing in maturity with respect to our conscience and practicing it uh, becomes a bit of a challenge because it, it's not just a matter of growing your conscience to where you have freedom to do you know, all the things that God might say, yep, free to do that, but you actually begin to exercise your conscience with a view of serving others. But there's a second part of this, and I, and I want you to see, he not only set our interests above his own, he served as a Jew in order to save not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Now think about this. I, I gotta tell you, this was, this was a new thought to me. I just never took time to consider it until I read through that book on the conscience that I recommended uh, week one, uh, the book written by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. And in a portion that J.D. Uh, put together, and I even heard him preach on this before, I think this is the first time I ever considered that Jesus wasn't always a Jew. Now, I know it's for some of you like, duh, he was God from eternity past, so he had no real ethnicity and he turned past. I know, I know, I, I should have thought of that long before, but I didn't. But not only did he leave the glory and perfection of heaven, that was rightfully his, Philippians 2, he decided to enter a particular ethnic culture that was one of the hardest and tightest cultures to live in. So that meant everything that Jewish boys were subject to as he was growing up, he was subject to, attended synagogue, Every Sabbath, probably, you know, as a 12-year-old, went through his own bar mitzvah or whatever. It was the typical practice at that particular point. It meant he had to observe all the feast days and holiday regulations and those policies and, and laws that were in place concerning personal purity and cleansing and sacrifices. I mean, he was right in the middle of all of that. He did that in order to serve and save both Jew and Gentile. Look at verses eight and nine. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. We can't even begin to fathom what kind of uh, humbling step down that was for him. And while most of us think in terms of our liberties and growing our conscience out that way, like, well, in this context, in this culture, what am I free to do? Jesus, as the consummate servant, was thinking in terms of what will actually serve these people who are lost in their sins and are such rebels that they daily are breathing out reproach against God. What will actually serve in such a way that they could be rescued? And it was a life of suffering. It was a life of inconvenience for him. It was a lifetime of of bearing insults and being rejected and knowing what it was to be marginalized, pushed to the edges of the community and despised by those he came to save. And as you continue reading in Romans 15, eight and nine, you see three purposes emerge. First of all, to show that God meant what he said, to show God's truthfulness, to fulfill the promises made long before, because remember God started speaking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thousands of years before, but ultimately to, to bestow mercy on the Gentiles. It was a mission of mercy. So this is the motivating love of Christ, but then to be more specific, it's also the welcoming love of Christ, and that's where Paul takes it. Go back to verse seven. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 
I put some pictures up at the very outset of the, of the message of, of people who are hugging one another, embracing one another. It's just kind of that, that open-heartedness. And you know, Jesus would have had every right to descend from heaven as judge and come with a sword of justice and just wipe the planet Earth clean because of our great sin and rebellion against the most holy God. But that's not how he came. He, he attired himself as a servant, lived as a servant, in particular as a, as a Jewish man, willingly going along with all of those traditions and ordinances, some of which were right out of the Old Testament, many of which were just man-made tradition at that point, knowing he would one day overthrow them, but temporarily saying, I can do this for the sake of the ones I've come to save. I don't have to have bacon with my eggs in the morning as a Jewish man because there's a greater mission. I don't have to retain the glorious attire of my righteous robes in heaven. I can wear sandals like an ordinary guy and step into the clothing of that Hebrew culture for a time. But those are the issues we start getting hung up on. Because when it comes down to it, we first of all don't really know the love of Christ personally and we don't spend time thinking in terms of how has he positioned me to love others around me. Now, let's look at the text again because there's, really, there's something really remarkable that happens when we, when we so immerse our own hearts in the love of Christ, begin to try to think in terms of how can I love others as Christ has loved me, welcoming me, it's opening his heart and arms if you want to visualize that. But go, but go back to uh, verse five. This is Paul's prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, that is you all, the church at Rome, and by extension here, Gospel Hope, grant Gospel Hope to live in such harmony with one another in accord with with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Oh, this is just loaded with significance loaded with significance as we think that the, the real unity that he is after that, that produces this one voice is not that we get in one room and we just hash through every one of these differences until we all come out believing and agreeing with the same thing. But if you look around, that's often what a lot of churches have been reduced to. And if we were really honest, we would change the names of our churches to reflect that we're, we're really homeschool Baptist church. Because everybody here homeschools their kids, and that makes us really comfortable. Or we're actually Republican policies Presbyterian church. Because thank God no Democrats come here. Or we are conservative worship music Methodist church. And if those other people want to do the devil's music, they can. But we all agree. We sing these 51 hymns, and we sing it in this particular style, and boy, do we feel comfortable. Or we are rocking the house Bible church. We are so done with that old out antiquated music and we just want to praise Jesus. Isn't it good we all agree on that? Is that the one voice that Paul is writing of here? That we actually have to agree on all of those big categories and then the subcategories that, that flow out from that? No, that's not at all what he's after. He actually could have settled every one of those disputed matters because uh, again i i think god does at, at the end have his own opinions about what's right or even what's best 
but because the church is always growing and people are coming from different backgrounds, the beautiful part of this gospel is that the Lord himself is patient and merciful and gives us time to grow. In the course of the service, you've heard a few cries from the nursery, haven't you? And, and some of you tuned it out totally. Others of you are like, can somebody get that kid under control? Well, you know what's going on in this room right now is some of you are, spiritually speaking, just making your way through the nursery, the early years of your salvation. You don't know everything, and, and you haven't gotten it all sorted out yet, and that's okay. And others of you who are mature need to remember what it was like to be a little kid in the Lord. The seasons where you didn't have it all figured out, and, and I guarantee you that if all of us who have been followers of Jesus could be given the opportunity, we'd look back and say, you know, I used to believe or think or practice, but God changed my heart on some things. It's different now. So I'm thankful that God is patient with us all, and, and aren't you glad he hasn't lost sight of the fact that there are always little ones, weak ones in the congrega- congregation, he makes room for them. Paul could have written in and said, hey, you weak people, stop it. Time to eat meat. But he didn't say that, did he? What he actually said is, uh, let me caution you, you weak ones, Don't judge the strong, and you strong ones don't despise or devalue the weak ones. You're all beautiful and valuable to the people of God. Here's what you need to focus on, welcoming one another, despite those significant differences of opinion. The one voice that he is ultimately speaking of here is the one voice that says Jesus Christ is everything. Eating meat, drinking wine, observing special days, special, that's not what the kingdom is about. It's about this one Lord and Savior who lived and died and rose again and is coming again. The visible harmony of our love for one another despite our differences of opinion in matters even of conscience creates this beautiful voice that glorifies God. And though Paul doesn't say it here, I'm also mindful that it's also what opens the door to other people. Like, wow, have, have you been to a place like Gospel Hope? Those people, despite their differences, so love one another, I've just never seen anything quite like it. And to be a member there is not Jesus plus a style of music, a particular position on education. It's not Jesus plus a, a political platform. It's just Jesus. When both groups welcome one another, creates that one voice. And notice this, back in verses five through seven, it glorifies God through visible harmony. Now as we think it through, is your heart in life like an open table of hospitality? This is where we not only have to battle that American mentality of strong individualism and strong personal rights and, and our own identity, but we have to submit ourselves to the word of God Because at the end of the day, it's not an American thing. It's not an Iraqi thing. This is a Christ follower gospel thing. And the second question, are you the kind of person that others are drawn to because you seek to love and serve, to nourish and bless, just like Jesus came into really hard circumstances, but with an open heart and open arms saying, you know what, you can... You can reproach my father and reproach me. You can reject and despise me, but I am gonna love you. For some of you, until you've sat down at Christ's table of salvation and experienced his forgiveness, 
until you've known his gracious acceptance and unconditional love, um, it's not only hard, it's actually impossible for you to be this kind of person. You've got to be sure that Christ really has welcomed you before you can welcome others. And aren't you thankful that his welcome of you and me today is not dependent upon our works, our efforts, our achievements of, of righteousness? His welcome is dependent upon his life, his death, his resurrection, totally. So that's a lot. I hope it not only impacts Thanksgiving dinner this week, whatever that looks like on Thursday. I hope it impacts our, the tables in our kitchens and dining rooms for the rest of the days that Jesus gives us. I hope it impacts the way we walk through those doors every Sunday. It's harder for you who are introverted to live life like this. You feel so vulnerable and exposed when you do that. But do you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did to you. And he says, just, just try it now. Because there's somebody else he's sending through those doors week by week who needs you to be the one to say, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. So as we calibrate our consciences to the word of God, know that it's with a view that we would serve like Jesus and love like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are for our Savior, your Son. Oh, Lord Jesus, what humility you have shown to enter the world at that particular moment in history. There, there were no conveniences available to you, but even that you would choose to enter the humble household of a Jewish carpenter and young wife to learn a common trade, to participate in all the Jewish cultural things with a view that you might win, not just the, the Jews that you lived and, and knew, but Gentiles too, Gentiles like us. Oh, what a savior and servant you are. Would you forgive us for our self-centeredness, even the, the carnal um, practice of our liberties? And as we continue to submit our souls to you, our consciences to you, we ask that you would calibrate them according to your truth and then that you would, would fuel them with vision for this kind of one voice, Christ uh, servant ministry. I give you praise that that gospel hope tracks so well right now, but all of us need to grow. And we dare not take this love that we have experienced and love that we're seeking to give for granted, but God help us today to renew our commitment to work at this type of living and serving so that as others see and hear this Christ-centered unity, they, uh, as Paul wrote, would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ even as we seek to do that. So let your blessing rest upon us in the balance of this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.